Hey, everyone. Welcome back to a special bonus episode of On the Tape. I'm Guy Adami. I'm joined, as always, by Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. And today we're chatting with Rebecca Jarvis. Rebecca is ABC News Chief Business Technology and Economic Correspondent. She is also the creator and host of the podcast No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis, which features in-depth interviews with female CEOs, founders, and innovators. Rebecca reports across all ABC News programs. She previously worked at CBS News, CNBC, and as an investment banker and foreign currency trader. She's here today to talk about her latest project releasing today, March 15th on Hulu. It's called Game Stopped. So that's the professional introduction. Now let's give the personal introduction. I've met so many people over the 37 years I've been with CNBC, but I think it was late 2005, early 2006, I met our next guest. One evening at CNBC in Englewood Cliffs, she was at a desk working with somebody. I was just coming off the set of some mock fast money thing. And I looked at her and I said, I know who this is. I couldn't figure it out. And then days later, we met in person and we've become great friends over the years. So it's my pleasure to welcome Rebecca Jarvis. How are you, RJ? Guy, it's so great to see you and the whole team. I remember that. I still remember you walking up to me, by the way. Oh, stop. That's liar, liar. Your pants are on fire. I I swear I can picture you walking up to my desk. You walked up because this is the kind of person Guy is. He says hello to everybody and he is gracious. And you took the time to come up and say hi. And it's been friendship ever since. Big fan. That is true. And, you know, we've talked about careers, families, all different things. You know, it's interesting. We don't see each other, obviously, especially now, but I consider Rebecca one of my closest friends. So again, it's great to have you. And I want to say this, and I know you don't like to talk about yourself that much, but People Magazine doesn't get a lot right. But in, I think, the year 2000, they got something right because you were named one of the, I think, 20 teens that were going to change the world. And they nailed that because in a lot of ways, in, in your medium, in your vertical, you've absolutely changed the world, RJ. Thank you, Guy. Yeah, there's one other person on that list they got a little bit right. Her name is Beyonce. And I'm not sure if you've heard <laughs> of her or not, but she really did incredible things after that people list. It's interesting. And I'm going to let Danny and Dan get in here. But You know, the stories we do at CNBC are obviously extraordinarily business-centric, and obviously you've been with CBS, ABC, ABC Now. It's different because the audience is different. So the deep-diving news stories are, I think, more, I don't know, intricate or trickier to do for you. How do you find having such a great business mind and coming from CNBC, bringing digestible business news to your audience? You know, I think of it as a huge responsibility because I was at CNBC during the financial crisis and I left at sort of the tail end in in 2009. And I went to more mainstream network news from there. And I realized very quickly how much bad information people were broadly getting. And that was part of the thing. I mean, I loved, genuinely loved my time at CNBC. I'm still friends with so many people like you guys who I met along the way and really credit CNBC with helping me understand this industry and and getting my feet wet in it. But I think fundamentally, what I strive to do is to break things down for people and to make sure that they're dealing with the best information possible. Because my favorite word, as you know, Guy, is charlatans. There are so many charlatans out there selling ideas. You can't lose. You have to do this. And 
I prefer to deal more in probabilities around facts that if someone gives you an outcome, if someone sells you an idea that's based on certainty, I think in general, you should run the other direction. If someone sells you an outcome based on a probability, then that's someone I would give some consideration to. So great to see you again, Rebecca. Last time I saw you was in Miami. I'm excited to uh, see your entire documentary. I'm probably the least of the entertainment on that, but uh, it should be great. Question for you, and I totally agree with you. My objective and our objective in this podcast is to tell the consumer or the investor what's really happening, to try to translate from what is happening. And I'm excited to see how you did that in this documentary, having only seen my part live that I haven't seen the recording of. (laughs) I, I, I can't attest to that. But what did you uncover kind of from your mindset of going in to make GameStop to when it ended? What what changed in your mindset, if anything? Well, first of all, I got to connect with you, Danny, which was a real treat. I think Adam McKay got a lot of things right about your character. <laughs> I now know you aren't quite the foodie that he suggested, but you are brilliant and you add terrific ideas and content to the story overall. I think anybody who tries to lay this out as just some very simplistic narrative is probably getting it wrong. And I try to never look at people as a monolith, groups of people, institutions in a monolith. Nothing is all good. Nothing is all bad. Generally speaking, there are some really bad people and some really great people in the world, but most of us are just trying to get ahead and figure out our way. And to me, the biggest thing was to unwrap how this happened and what it could mean going forward. And I think there's a lot of themes that are themes that have been present in the market, in the world for a very long time. Feelings that the system is rigged. I mean, you could go back to long-term capital management and find those feelings, but we do have new technology. And while there were chat rooms back in the bubble and those chat rooms could drive some activity Mr. Pink could get on board and and then eventually become a hedge fund manager in the future. But the reality here is that people have tools at their disposal. And I believe that there was a perfect storm between Reddit, Robinhood, the app, and other trading apps like it that make it incredibly successful. And then you add to that a pandemic where a lot of people are sitting around without a lot to do, without entertainment, as some of the Reddit investors told me, I didn't go to Las Vegas last year. I went on on my trading app. And then you add to that cheap money, 0% interest rates, and it is the perfect storm for an event like this. And it's not a single event. It is something that now is unfolding in many stocks, but GameStop has become the poster child for it. Rebecca, do you think based on some of your reporting and some of the just when I look at the people that you have in this documentary, I just can't wait to watch it because it's just like a who's who in financial markets of I think the last 20 years. And you you just mentioned like the dot com bust or whatever. All of these people or most of them were very prominent in the last couple cycles. But then you have some new people like Davy Day Trader. And it, to me, it's really fascinating because the introduction of people like those you mentioned a chat board named Mr. Pink from 20 years ago or whatever. He's like that. He's a meme. He's pushing a lot of this behavior. Do you think that we are likely to see this as a rolling situation over the next few years or something like that, given a lot of the technology is in place to enable not just institutional players? 
I do. And the thing that tells me that there obviously have to be certain things in place. For example, I think if interest rates go up significantly, some of the access to margin that if you are a new investor, it's not going to be cheap to do that type of investing anymore. So it's going to be a more financially motivated decision. But I think that fundamentally, the elements are all there. And I think what's telling is that where this started was GameStop in this run up to the decision that Robinhood and many of the online brokerages made to restrict trading. And you saw the sell off in the stock as a result of that. But now we're back a couple of weeks later and the stock has recovered all of that ground. And it's it's not a loss of appetite. If you go back on the Wall Street bets boards, people are still in it. That amateur day trader investor is still very hungry to do this. And plus, GameStop still has the short interest. So that's like sort of the driving thing that motivated a lot of these investors to look at it in the first place. But everybody I talked to, Jim Chanos, for example, legendary hedge fund manager, short investor, they all believe that this will change on some level how hedge funds conduct themselves as a business. And if they have to be thinking about it, then the the smaller investor, the newcomer is thinking about it too. Wall Street woke up. I think when I say Wall Street, I mean the institutions woke up to this retail crowd and they have to respect it. They may not agree with it, but they actually have, have to respect it. I've always made the argument that short sellers provide a service, as do long buyers, to the marketplace by just providing information. I want to move to Theranos for a second, which I know you did an expose on and you dug deep in there. And I want to kind of relate that to the consumer, maybe in this case, not being the retail investor since the company never made it public because it duped a bunch of venture capital before it ever got there, thank goodness, but blood tests that would have been erroneous. So when I think about what, what short sellers or people like you can expose, maybe talk about that for a second, because we potentially, by you doing what you did or people uncovering the Theranos fraud when they did, I don't mean to be dramatic here, but it may have saved people's lives or sent them down a different path of their healthcare. Can you talk about kind of that place in society for what you are doing, both in public and private markets? Sure. Well, and I, I thought a lot about Theranos when I started approaching this story because there were people who were saying, do away with shorts. Shorts are just bad, inherently a bad idea. And that's why I wanted Jim Chanos to be a part of the conversation because had he not shorted Enron, and been out in front of everybody. I mean, this was a Wall Street darling when he started shorting it. Everyone thought he was crazy, including the people who worked at the company who were trying to cover up gigantic fraud. And I do believe there's a place for short sellers, and that's part of the thinking behind having him present. At the same time, and this is, has nothing to do with the fact that GameStop was the most heavily shorted stock on the market, I also think that there's risk. Right. And if you are a hedge fund, your entire objective is to manage risk. And I think that it can be argued that the hedge funds that were so excessively short GameStop and were not short GameStop on the principle that there was fraud. No one alleges anything like that. They were short on the principle that this was a company that was losing ground, closing stores, had no renaissance or, or hope in front of it, that they left themselves in a corner. And whether it was going to be Wall Street bets or another hedge fund that realized that vulnerability that they could take advantage of, it was there. And so they weren't doing their job the best that they could do their job when they made that choice. 
You know, as a listener to news, all different things, I'm always fascinated by the backstories. How did that person get to this point where they're naturally curious about certain things? And I know your backstory, but I'd love for you to share with our audience. Obviously, it comes from your folks. Your mom, nationally syndicated business writer, Barron's Online, Chicago Tribune. I happen to follow on Twitter. You should as well, Gail Marks Jarvis. But can you speak to your upbringing as sort of the platform for which you dove off into this world. That is so thoughtful of you to mention my mom guy. Yes. So I grew up in a home. My mom's a journalist. My grandfather was a journalist. Curiosity is what underlies all of my decision-making. If I'm curious and if a story doesn't feel cut and dry, if it doesn't feel straightforward, those are the kinds of stories that motivate me to go off and tell them. And, And I would call this sort of in an extracurricular way. Of course, I get to do it for Good Morning America and World News Tonight, but Theranos and this story were two where they're not the same story. In one, there's fraud. In the other, there's just a lot of questions about what it means for the system, why people did what they did. And that intrigued me and motivated me. You know, the story, we released the documentary on March 15th, The Ides of March. And I don't necessarily think it's a soothsayer or a canary, but I do believe that it is part of a larger trend. And when we talk about SPACs and NFTs and hysteria and interest rates and whether the market is an accurate reflection of the underlying reality uh, and fundamentals, I believe this story has all of those things in it. I believe it raises all of those questions. And that, for me, was a big reason to go after it. Rebecca, you just mentioned how your household influenced your career here. You know, it's interesting. I have a 17-year-old daughter and a 15-year-old daughter. And this all happened in the last 48 hours. My 17-year-old daughter said to me, Dad, the money I made from working is sitting in a PayPal account. It's not doing anything. She goes, they're offering me the ability to buy that Bitcoin thing that I hear you talking about all the time. So she bought Bitcoin and she bought Ethereum with the money that she made hardworking. And then my 15-year-old daughter, who's home on spring break, she said to me, Dad, I want to buy, she saw something on TikTok and she is uh, wants to download a mobile social trading app. I mean, have we lost our minds here? And this is not coming from me. This is coming from social media. This is coming from their iPhone. What is about your reporting of late on this whole story? It's it's literally seeping into our teenagers right now. I mean, there's a part of it that I love and a part of it that I hate. The part that I love is the curiosity and the innate interest to understand more. The part of it that, that bothers me is the questions. I mean, We have to ask questions before we make giant decisions with our money. And if we don't ask those questions and if we don't fully understand the risk that we're undertaking, and I I am certain you talk to your daughters about the fact that, look, great, you might get something, but you also could lose everything. That for me, the loss of everything, there's no such thing as a free lunch. It is something that Milton Friedman said, regardless of how you think about Milton Friedman, that I still think is true. And I think. It can look too easy. So Dave Portnoy, Barstool Sports, Davy Day Trader, and I had a conversation about this. Back in March of 2020, he said stocks only go up. And he was right between March of 2020, essentially, and March of 2021. But it's important to have a longer memory about 
the stock market. If you're going to be putting huge amounts of money, for example, your whole net worth, and then using margin into the market, because that is not how it always works year to year. And if you're trying to be a short-term investor and capitalize on things, you have to also have an awareness that it can turn very quickly. And one of the things that really was confounding to me in the early days of covering this story was how to make sure that that was represented in my reporting, as well as people like Davy Day Trader and, and his thoughts. Because the reality is a lot of the people who are involved in trading right now and young and new to the market haven't seen an extended bear market. They haven't seen the time pre the 80s and 90s when things didn't work this way. The stock market didn't just go up infinitely. And if interest rates start going up, if the Fed takes a, a less accommodative policy, which I don't think there's any inclination to do that at the Fed right now, but in a world where those things start to matter and matter differently, stocks don't just go up exponentially. No, and I appreciate that. And obviously, the CNBC audience is very un a unique audience. The ABC audience is literally the entire country. So I want to know how you deal with the following question because we get it all the time. I say in some parts of this country, the entire country, for some people, for 35 million people in this country, it's flat out late 1920s, early 1930s, without a question. Yeah. For another maybe 30 million people, it's never been better. And then people in the middle, a little bit worse, a little bit better, same as it's been. How do you reconcile? How do you explain to people that although the stock market's at an all-time high, you feel their pain and you've realized that the economy isn't the stock market? How do you answer that very difficult question? It is difficult. I, I think it's where words like K-shaped recovery or K-shaped economy come into play because it is so clearly a black and white different universe for people depending on where they sit. And even, even without the pandemic or this particular moment, it's been a question like you that I get all of the time. Part of what attracted me to GameStop and part of what concerns me about it is that it all starts to look so illusory. And yet their fundamentals do eventually have to matter. And I think Wall Street at its best, if you think about what the purpose of Wall Street is, is to... Take a business, which all businesses begin small, take that business with all of its hope and all of its promise and give it a new chapter, one that's bigger than what it ever could have been potentially as a private company. That is Wall Street at its finest, where I think for me, I get most frustrated with Wall Street is when it feels like groupthink. And I acknowledge nothing is a monolith, like I said earlier, but when it's groupthink, and you can say that the emperor has no clothes and you can be fundamentally right that the emperor has no clothes, but you can be technically wrong and you can lose a lot of money if everybody else on Wall Street hasn't in that particular moment decided that the emperor has no clothes. And I think that's, that's a frustrating thing. And that's what leads to people saying things like it's rigged, it's a casino, it's a video game. Well, I would say that just from whether this is a good sign or not, the Big Short book was released on March 15th, 2010. Just FYI. Wow, as a, I love that. As a complete coincidence. But you talk about behavioral finance, which is 
how you do what you do. If you recognize something that everybody's one way, you can report on another. But what's interesting about what you said is Wall Street is always at the center of all of this. Why do I say that? The whole big short, the whole CDO machine wouldn't have existed. Mortgages wouldn't have been available to the consumer in the way that they were with these exotic mortgages unless Wall Street was packaging them and selling them. Same thing here. Robinhood wouldn't have been able to exist without the underbelly of the payment for order flow and the existence of the, if you want to call it, mechanisms that exist to allow people to trade like this. It always comes back. I want to go where when the, when the, when the tide goes out, which at some point the tide has to go out on this bull market, whether it's tomorrow or a year from now, things get exposed. You are going to have your choice of what to report on at that moment. Is there anything that you're looking at right now, whether it's central banks that have played a key role in kind of keeping confidence in the market? Is it something like, are there a hundred different green sills out there that may exist right now? What are you kind of looking at or what do you, where do you think it's going to take you? There are a handful of companies that I'm looking at right now that I believe are, you know, they're public, but they might as well be Theranos. And that certainly exists. And when the tide comes out, they will be exposed in the same way that Bernie Madoff was exposed when the tide came out. I think that there are definitely asset bubbles. And I think it's almost impossible to look at those asset bubbles and not think that on some level, cheap money plays a role. And when you can borrow, if you're 0.72 or any of the hedge funds, when you can borrow eight times what you put into something for nothing, and that thing is always going up, what do you think it's going to lead to? And this, in some respects, goes back to Guy's question about how different the world looks. Well, in part, the world, in my opinion, looks very different because if you have access to capital and you have access to a 401k or any access to financial instruments, then yeah, your world does look pretty good because they've all been inflated. But if you don't have access to those things, if you don't own assets, then your world looks very different. And obviously, you know, you, you look at the inflation of stocks, for example, versus what's happened to incomes, it's two completely different worlds. So I think I will be looking at all of that. It's, it's hard to say exactly what the story in that moment will be, but I was thinking about before our conversation and just thinking about even working on GameStop, acronyms. 2006, 2007, there were all these new acronyms that didn't mean anything to most people, but they were fundamental to the bubble and the story. And now we have a giant new set of acronyms and a lot of people don't really understand them. And a lot of people are still either participating in them or enabling them or churning them out. I, I just, my goal is that if you are interested in these things, really dig into them. Think about them, think about what they mean, and before you put a dime into them, understand them. So you you bring up a good point, the idea of doing some work and understanding things. You know, we've been talking about this GameStop thing, the Reddit thing for a while. It's interesting to hear reporters, you hear them all the time, just trying to give um, this crew a lot of credit. Well, you should hear the, the acronyms that they're using, LTV and this and that or whatever. They're doing some real work. And that might be the case for a handful of people, but we all have supercomputers in our pockets. We're all staring at screens all day long. We all can get whatever answers that we want. What troubles me right now is 
just the goofiness, the the memes, the acronyms, that sort of thing. Because, you know, last night on CNBC's Fast Money, the GameStop the guy, what was it? The, the, the guy who came in there, the Chewy guy, yeah, he tweets out some meme and that's supposed to mean something. And the stock's moving off of it. And, you know, so you can make, you can say stonks or whatever the heck the, 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 the meme of the day is and they only go up this or that or whatever. But stupid is stupid. And, and when it comes to money, you know, you might be right. You said this before, Rebecca, you might be right for a period of time, but, you know, it's never different this time. And that's the thing that kind of troubles me. Was there anything about the psychology when you were making this doc that you found a lot of people buying into this newfound way of investing? And that would really freak me out. Yeah. I think of it like concentric circles, that there's the core where in that core, you have people who are really doing their diligence and putting in a lot of time and giving it a lot of consideration. But then you have all of these other concentric circles that build out from that initial group and they're not putting in the time and yet they hear something and that leads to the mania and the hysteria. I I was walking out to one of my live shots for Good Morning America when there was a blizzard and GameStop also happened to be the story. And it was a blizzard in New York and people were struggling and, and they had shut down all of the traffic. But what are the two people talking about as they walk by me on the street? GameStop. Did you put money into it? My dentist. I went to my dentist during this whole thing and he turned to me and said, should I buy GameStop? Now, that's not an educated, thoughtful approach to any of this. I'm I'm 100% on board with doing your work and making a decision. And even if I and another person don't see eye to eye on the fundamental value of a company, if you've done your work, that's what makes markets. But where I get really nervous is the pylon effect of people who haven't done the work, who are late to the game, who see it and think it's so easy. That's the no such thing as a free lunch idea. There's a lot of people who are like, wow, it's so easy. I'm going to do this. And it's not. You can lose a lot of money very quickly. It's interesting. So say what you want about Mel Gibson as a human being. I've never met him, so I really can't say without any great certainty. But what I will tell you is I thought The Patriot was a great movie. I thought Braveheart was a great movie. And I bring that up because... He led people into the field of battle. Both those movies, people blindly followed him into battle, something that he was passionate about. So my question to you, are we going to learn who the Mel Gibson is in this GameStop story watching your doc? Have you figured it out? Because I'm convinced that although the the Reddit crowd and the WSB crowd, um, there's some very bright people, not unlike some of the Warriors and Braveheart and the Patriot but somebody is leading these men and women into battle. Have we discovered who that person or group of people are? (laughs) So in my look, the guy, Keith Gill, who the Congress called in front to, to talk about it. He's one of the first people who's really talking about GameStop back when it's four bucks a share and no one's paying any attention to it. And frankly, he gets a lot of pushback, even from the Wall Street Bets community of what's your obsession with this thing. And he does. He lays out both the fundamental and the technical case for the stock in his post. The thing that I also was drawn to this story for is the mob and the power of the mob. There doesn't have to be any longer one leader of the group. Social media unites people around common themes. 
And in this case, the common theme is a single stock. And I would say that I think that there's two very specific groups on Wall Street bets that care about this stock. There's the group that cares about it purely for the idea that they could make money on it. And then there's the other group, which sees it as more of a morality play that thinks of this where when it's $350 a share, they're still saying, hold. Well, if you bought it $4 and it's $350 now and you studied trading, you probably are going to at least take out your cost basis on that one at a, at a minimum. So I think that the people who really bought into this as a pure morality play, they are the ones who very likely will get harmed the most, especially if they were buying in late and and getting involved at the top. Yeah. There's certain things here that leverage we always talk about kills everything, whether it's leverage on a person's personal balance sheet in their GameStop account, whether they're buying on margin, whether they've sold puts to buy something lower or sold calls unhedged really, really kills them at, at the very end. But what's mesmerizing to me or mind blowing, I should say, is it's one thing to have momentum and everyone piling on. It's another to take a step back and say to yourself, honestly, is GameStop worth this market cap? Could it ever be this big? Is there anything that you could possibly come up with that can get you to that? And part of this, I think, is the bull market having gone on as long as it has. Companies like Tesla, which have detached from fundamentals. And they these stocks become stories, to your point, Rebecca, and you're telling these stories. As we burn back through the atmosphere, there is no bottom to these companies in terms of where do you buy a company as it goes lower. To your point, everyone's going to lose. How do you try to convey this and explain that to everybody just to, to take a step back from the madness and to try to do the work? You know, Because once you do the work, you won't go near these companies. You have thoughts on like teaching people fundamental basics of bottom up? I know that's not your job <laughs> per se, but how do you convey that? And did that get across at all in the documentary? I hope it did on some level. Look, Every one of my reports that I did on ABC News about this story made the point that this is very different than a 401k investment where you put your money in and you let it grow over time and there's ups and downs along the way, but you're not trying to take your money out for 30 years. In this case, it is a short-term bet and that short-term bet can go up or down. You can be right and still get it wrong. And you can lose a huge amount of money very quickly if you are wrong. And that to me is the most important, simplest takeaway for people, but it can also be a hobby. Look, this is a hobby for the people who are talking about it on Wall Street Bets. It's an expensive hobby, but if you're approaching it as a hobby, that's your choice. But you better know it if you're not. So, Rebecca, you didn't push back at Guy, um, his proclamation that The Patriot was a great movie. I mean, it was, <laughs> great, it was a great movie. I was so taken up by Braveheart and that that scene of uh, Mel Gibson telling everyone to hold. I, I recreated that scene with lots of the, the Reddit investors. Yeah. And you know who else has recreated that scene is Davy Day Trader, like every other morning, you know. Yeah. And, and so that that's the sort of stuff is like, what did you make of these finfluencers, uh, mm-hmm. these financial influencers? Who, who really, you know, got in there with the memes and, and really were kind of giving some credence to that movement that you're talking about. I mean, I, I know that we're just the suits. We're the guys, you know, who were brought up on Wall Street and talk about it on CNBC and we're kind of easy targets. But 
I thought the fanning of the flames and kind of getting people involved for anything other than financial interest, because really when you're investing in the stock market or you're buying a cryptocurrency or whatever, you are literally, you have to lead with your financial interest. If you don't, then you're using poor risk management, right? So I feel like that movement was really egged on by people who could afford to lose, uh, you know, in these situations. What was your takeaway on that? Yeah, I asked him, I asked Mark Cuban, I asked all of these people who are both these big personalities as well as participants about what they see as their responsibility in the market. I'm not sure. Sometimes I feel like nobody fully appreciates their responsibility these days. When you have a megaphone, I I wrestle with this a lot. What is the most important takeaway? There's things that I can do to capitalize on my role. There's things you guys can do to capitalize on your role, but I'm going to go ahead and guess you don't do them because you acknowledge that even though it would be so easy to do, there's the risk that you put people who hear you and hear you very literally at. Portnoy and I talked about the fact that he could stand to lose the money and he acknowledged I can lose it. Not everybody can. People need to be cautious about that. I do go back to this idea that sports betting, sports trading, the beginning of the pandemic, their DraftKings account didn't mean much. So a lot of his users and Barstool Sports Soolies were drawn to this because of that. And, and he fully acknowledges that this has been good for his business, that he, and also that he'll probably be on to something else in a couple of weeks. Exactly. He's going to be on to something else in a couple of weeks, and he's going to leave all these other people in, in the wake. And, and there is a huge responsibility. We've been doing it. Danny's going to roll his eyes. You won't be able to see it on this podcast. I can see it now. On Fast Money, there's a huge responsibility to the audience to try to be a truth teller and try not to be the word you use that I love, that I learned from you, charlatan, because so many people are. And words do have meaning. And when you try to bring forth truth to the audience, what I've learned the hard way is... And this is, I don't know if this is going to sound right, but everybody says they want to hear the truth. But in reality, people just want to hear what gets them through the day and able to wake up the next morning. And when the stock market goes up every day, those truth tellers get drowned out. But with that said, there's still that responsibility to the audience. And, you know, you do this great podcast, No Limits. I think you're up to 170 or so episodes. There's a responsibility with that as well. You've interviewed some amazing people. Who are you dying to get on next? Like, who is the great get for Rebecca Jarvis on your podcast? Well, I think Janet Yellen, given her position right now, there's a lot of questions about what's happening in the finances of the the country and the economic picture that I would really like to talk to her about. So she's, she's in my head, the most obvious person. Do you have anyone? Well, we have you on now, so I got to cross that box <laughs> off, right? No, I think Janet Yellen would be fascinating. I'd love to speak to Jerome Powell and ask him some mm-hmm. of the questions that I openly talk about on the show every day. Do you feel a responsibility? Because quite frankly, all the policies that you put forth and your predecessors have put forth are creating this wealth gap, whether you realize it, acknowledge it or not. The reason why the wealth gap in this country has never been greater are the policies of the Federal Reserve. And that's the first question I'd ask him that he wouldn't answer. And the second question would be, I know you live in this country last I looked. How can you say with a straight face that there's no inflation? I see it every single day. And the people that live here, the 350 million people that live here, see it as well. How are they supposed to take you seriously? So that, that'd be the questions that I asked JP, but I'm not going to get him on. All I can think about right now is the last scene in Braveheart 
which I feel like is about to happen to a lot of the retail investors out there where they're going to cry some word. Maybe it's not freedom. Maybe maybe it's something else at the end. But we'll see if that made the doc. I don't think that quite made the documentary, Rebecca. But uh, <laughs> I, I do think there is some pain coming for people out there. And you've done your part and your job to kind of get them at least smarter. Maybe they don't listen or maybe they don't acknowledge it, but at least you're trying to make them smarter when you're doing this. So I got a question for Rebecca, just while we're on the media and while we're on your great podcast, um, what has podcasting, how, how is that differentiated from your reporting on TV? And then I also just want you to follow up. Have you experimented a little bit with Clubhouse or Twitter spaces that they're launching here? I think um, Guy and I have been doing Twitter spaces. We're really enjoying it during the market day. Danny, hopefully will join us soon if we can get them off the golf course. I don't know. Do they work on golf courses, Twitter spaces? You know what, Dan? I'm you just, know what? I, listen, I'm just curious. But what do you, so what is, what is the audio format meant to you? You were brought up in TV. You, uh, unlike Guy, you have a face for TV also and a brain for the podcasting world too. Uh, I love the format. When I originally set out to do the dropout, the podcast about Theranos, it was exactly because I wanted to do it as a podcast because I saw the potential I think what's beautiful and what I love about audio as a format and especially podcasts is that you can dig into the details and the audience wants that. They're along for the nuance. And if you just give them the basics, which is oftentimes what a shorter format TV piece or video piece will do, they're not as satisfied. And I don't feel as personally satisfied by the shorter form conversation. So it was immediately an opportunity that I really wanted to use. And especially for a story like that, that had so many layers to it. Truth be told, I've done Clubhouse. I have yet to do Twitter spaces. Both of them really came into their own. I I know that, that Clubhouse has been around for the last year. They both came into their own while I was racing to tell the GameStop story. So it was, for me, it was one more thing on a long list of things to do. Although I like it, I'm intrigued by it. I do wonder what happens now as the country opens up more, as people have more engagements in the evening, for example, because that's when I think a lot of the conversations are happening on Clubhouse. And I mean, social media just in and of itself raises all of these questions. But for me, I like it. I just think of it as one more thing on a long list of things to do, though, and that overwhelms me. Yeah, it is overwhelming. And we're trying to do a lot of things. With On the Tape, what we're trying to do is CNBC's wonderful to us, for me personally, over the last 15, 16 years. I know Dan can speak to that as well. That's only 15 plugs for CNBC so far. Okay. All right. You know, Danny, I mean, you've appeared on the network (laughs) numerous times, by the way, just so you know. And I love, before we knew each other, you came on. I'm like, oh my God, that's Danny Moses. That's really, it's really effing cool, as the kids say. But my (laughs) point is like, this gives us the, this gives us the opportunity to take a little bit of a deeper dive on the tape and get into these conversations in a little more granular way. And that's what we're trying to do here. And then there's a lot of people listening right now. They're saying, Guy, you're 40 minutes in, and you didn't mention one thing. And I'm not going to ask you about this, but I will mention it. So season four of The Apprentice, I was watching The Apprentice back in the day because it was actually a pretty good show, and I'm watching it go along, and there was this young woman who broke her ankle, I think, at the Nassau Coliseum uh, and a hockey thing that they did. And I'm watching her navigate her way through, and she makes it to the finals along with a gentleman named Randall Pinkett. And I remember Donald Trump is there interviewing both of you and he turns to Randall, who he had determined to be the apprentice, and he says, should we hire Rebecca as well? And I'm saying to myself, in the moment, 
This is a huge opportunity for you, Randall. You can be magnanimous, generous. The the country's going to fall in love with you. All you have to say is, yes, she's been a worthy opponent. We've gotten to know each other. She'd be a great addition to the Trump organization. But instead, he said no. And I'm like, that guy blew it. She's going to go on to do great things. I was right. He was wrong. RJ, thanks for joining us on the tape. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much, Guy and Dan and Danny. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate you guys and what you're doing here. I think it's excellent. If you're listening to this in a podcast store, be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at On The Tape Pod, and we'll see you later in the week for our usual Friday, wait for it, drop. Drop.